We're almost there. It is almost football season. It hit me the other day how many Sundays have gone by and I haven't mentioned the Razorbacks. Mercy. How have we survived? Well, that, that explains the summer attendance, right? We stopped talking about football. So what happened? We, uh, I remember the first time I went to uh, a Razorback game. I think it was a football game, and, and I was there, and, you know, you get the crowds and the energy. And, uh, and the first time I experienced the hog call, right? No. <laughs> you wish. Yeah, you. And now that was a season of my life, and I was still I'm extremely holy and spiritual, okay? So... Uh, what that meant was uh, I had a license to be a jerk to you, okay, because you weren't holy enough. So the moment that they began to put their arms in the air and chant this witchcraft, <laughs> I was like, you ain't tricked me with that Harry Potter stuff, <laughs> calling them spirits. Well, it's almost that time again, right? My oh, goodness gracious. Um, <laughs> mercy. So I'll segue from that onto this passage we just ran. So who knew that Christians were cannibals? Anybody? Yeah? Cannibals, vampires, whatever you want to call it. We are sustained off of flesh and blood of a human. Man. Well, um, what's so amazing about this passage is, you know, we've had thousands of, of years to, uh, to process this. Uh, think about it, to work through it, to try to find ways to understand it. And yet, when you read Jesus saying to you, eat my flesh, there's still something in you that just begins to, right? I mean, who shouted amen when he said, eat my flesh? No, not you? Okay. We're starting a new series this morning. Oh, it's called Eating is Believing, right? Are you starting to get the connection yet? Eating is believing. And we're going to start with this, with this concept this morning. Why in the world is Jesus calling us to feast upon his body? Mercy. Who's excited to be a Christian this morning? I had all these ideas of, of, of you know, <laughs> we could wrap something else inside the, 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 uh, the cloth today. And I could surprise you. Hey, we're eating Walking Dead fans in the room. Anybody? <laughs> yeah. And everyone goes, yeah, not that much. We're good. One of the things about the call to follow Jesus is that um, it is a difficult thing to embrace. It should cause you to have some reservations. Uh, the call to, to, uh, to follow Christ should cause you to be uncomfortable, and it should just be something that, if you would, is, is, is a test for you. Something that almost every day causes you to just, oh, I just, I don't know if I can do it today. Now, there's all sorts of uh, uh, information, study that, that goes into understanding exactly what Jesus is trying to say in this moment. But what's so interesting about this is that he says this one day after he had multiplied the loaves and the fishes. 
You guys know that story, right? Okay. Guys were in nursery back when you were kiddos, right? And they had the felt board and, you know, uh, here's all the white people and here's the bread and the fish, right? Everyone's like, we're done with that, right? Can we not talk about that today? And so, you know, you like, you know, here's the board and here's Jesus and he prays for the bread and we take off that piece of bread and there's like 10 pieces of bread, right? And so he does this amazing feat, this miracle. And then the next day, when the crowds come back to find him, he's gone to the other side. He's gotten a boat, he's gone to the other other side of this lake, and so the people have to go and find him. And so once they find him, they're so excited to have this second experience of this, this man who works miracles. We want more of the bread which you gave us yesterday. And that's what kind of sets the tone for this uh very frustrating kind of a statement that he makes. And what's also going on here, it, it, it notes this uh, uh, in chapter 6 at the beginning. It talks about this is the season right before Passover, which means that what's on their mind, many of these people are not actually from these cities. They're actually coming in from all different regions, and they're all preparing to celebrate the Passover meal, which happened once a year. And so when they're coming in, they're thinking about this feast, this meal, which they would share, and it would remind them, the bread and the wine would remind them of the meal that they took the night before God rescued their people. The night before that God took them out of Egypt, He took them from Pharaoh, He protected them from death, and He rescued them. And so what's on their mind is this meal, which is supposed to symbolize when God shows up to save, to rescue, to pull His people out. And so with this in mind, Jesus starts to try to change, trying to tweak, kind of trying to mess with the understanding of what is it that's going to save his people this time. And so that's when he begins to say this stuff. The people begin to just kind of freak out at him. And and he's saying, no, it's not the Passover meal anymore. It's not the bread and the juice the way you used to see it. What's going to save you now is a man. It's a person. And this, this statement was so powerful because uh, if you were a Jew at this time, okay, you have to understand, what you eat and what you drink is a big deal, right? Everyone understands this, okay? They weren't having pork at Passover, okay? And there's something worse than pork to eat. Would you like to guess what that is? Human beings. Worse than pigs. Jews do not drink blood. Okay? It is unclean. And what's going on here is this idea that it was the things that you would eat which would make you unclean. And he takes this concept and he begins to build on it because, see, for Jews, it wasn't just what you would eat which would make you unclean. Because, see, if I'm unclean, I'm not going to be a part of what God is going to do. Because, see, you have to understand that it was this Passover meal that they celebrated. It was a, it was a symbol where there was this... this uh, smearing of blood over their homes, which would signify that these people were set apart. They were made safe. They're now made clean. They're going to be included in God's rescue and His salvation. And so the ultimate fear for a Jew is to be on the outside of what God is doing, to be called unclean. And so it's not just things that I eat anymore. It's not just eating pork or, you know, having blood. It's not just that that makes me unclean. Now it's actually the things I wear the things I say, and the people that I associate with. 
So it's not just eating humans, which is a bad thing to God. Okay? It's who I hang out with. It's a very big deal. And so in this culture, there's something called uh, table fellowship, which is a very big deal for them. Who you eat with says everything about who you are. Okay, what's a modern-day analogy of this? Okay, when you go to a Razorback game, there are seats. This is an easy one. Yes. Are all seats the same? Okay. Seats say something. Okay? Okay. There are certain seats which anyone can have. There are other seats which anyone who wants to pay a little extra can have. And then there are seats that it takes a little more to have. And there's separation between these seats, right? And there are certain seats that it doesn't even matter how much money in that moment you want to pay. You can't just get them. It takes time. It takes effort. It takes knowing the right people. It takes them coming to you, and it takes uh, special donations over a long period of time. If you're part of, okay, I have to be careful. If you are someone who supports a football team uh, with the special donations, I'm not bashing you at all. I wish I could join you. Someday in faith, correct? But it takes a while, and you get into those seats which is not just about seeing the game from those seats. It's not just about having snacks and having a seat which makes these boxes and clubs special. Because truth is, there's much better places to watch the game, correct? The club boxes are not the best places to watch a game. It's not about the food. It's not a, you know, the chairs are a little bit more comfortable, but they're not that great, right? They're not worth $50,000, correct? It's not worth it. It's what comes with it. It's who I get to sit with. And even more important than who I sit with, these seats make sure that I control who doesn't sit with me. Amen, hallelujah. (laughs) There is an ability... If, if I can do the right things, I can not only get around the people I want to be around, but I can get away from the people I don't want to be around me. And I can control that. And see, the statement of Jesus is not just a statement of being unclean because of, you know, they're eating a human. Gosh, that sounds odd even saying that. It's taking the idea that even being around the wrong people would make me unclean, and it's taking it to the ultimate extreme. It's not just being around the wrong people. It's not just sitting down with the wrong people. It's not just, you know, having a meal or having to sit next to them or having to smell them. Eating. Oh, it's terrible. Disgusting. It's not disgusting to you. We need to have other discussions, correct? Correct. It's not so bad, but a little salt on it. It's not the... Now you're awake. Okay, good. And so what's happening here is we're seeing a very dramatic statement here. And 
we understand that he's, he is building a new understanding around this Passover meal, around this, this meal which already existed. He's building this understanding, and it's going to be important. It's going to be kind of a, a, a foundational stone upon which everything else is built upon. And so we see that later on in the story of Jesus, we see that on his last night, he's sharing this very Passover meal we're talking about. He's sharing the Passover meal. He's sitting down with his disciples. And in this context, he's sharing with them about how fundamental, how crucial it is for them to practice this. But he puts new meaning to it. And he takes the bread and he says, this is my body, broken for you. And he takes the juice and he says, this is my blood spilled out. It's poured out for you. And then even beyond that, we see this command that every time that we would gather together, that we would participate in this thing that we call the Eucharist. Communion, the Lord's table, whatever you are, whatever you're taught to call it. And at this participation of Eucharist, in some weird, mysterious, confusing way, this is going to be what's going to form you, what's going to change you, what's going to have you encounter God. In some way, this table is not just a table. In some way, the bread isn't just bread, it's not just juice. In some way, when I go to this, I'm connecting to Him. And even more profoundly, in some way, the meaning that's locked up in my choosing to participate in eating this meal, this is my salvation. Everyone goes, whoa, buddy. I said the sinner's prayer. I am saved. I I don't need a stale bread for that. So in this series, we're going to kind of open this up and and see what this means for us. What happens when we choose to make this meal, this practice, the, the Lord's Supper? What happens when the bread and juice become the starting point for how we relate to God? What happens when we take His Word seriously and we believe that our very salvation, that eternal life, is not found just in an, this idea about God, but it's found in a practice with God? Now, there are two ways to learn things, okay? Now, the first one, which most of you have uh, experienced in churches, is this. We teach you what to know, right? And if you know the right things, then you will do the right things, correct? Okay. If I tell my child, don't touch the stove, it's going to burn you. Then, of course, my child's not going to touch the stove. (laughs) Correct. Okay. You know where this is going. There's another way to learn. It's the opposite. Instead of knowing in order to do, sometimes I have to do in order to know. Does that make sense to you? There's a lot of things that that I can teach you, a lot that there is to know about this meal. And it will help you do or participate in a more full way. But that's not the meaning. It's not the purpose of this practice that we do as Christians. See, the table 
this meal is not something that, that, that we are taught about, so we do it. It's something that we do in order to understand everything else that we're supposed to do. One of the things about the New Testament, uh, the epistles of Paul, I used to get so frustrated with his stuff. He would, always, he would spend all his time teaching his churches how to interact with each other. Be nice. Don't be a jerk. Don't, don't lie to each other. Don't steal from each other. Don't, <laughs> yeah, right? And as a pastor, you think, man, if you would just teach them sound doctrine, just teach them what the Bible says, Paul, and then they'll do the right things. What's so funny about the New Testament is, it is the New Testament contains more about how you relate to each other than it does about how to think about God. Here, I'll explain it. The New Testament is not as concerned with you knowing in order to do. It's concerned with you doing in order to know. I see a lot of puzzled faces. You will learn more about God by learning how to treat each other than you will ever learn by me teaching you about the Bible. Okay? And so what happens with the table, this meal, this practice that we do, it is a place that if we can learn to focus and to do this with open hearts and open minds, it will teach us about everything else which we need to learn to do. It's this thing that I do in order to know. It's something that the more that I do this thing, the more that I take the bread, I take the juice, I look around at the people around me, I allow it to evaluate and test me, I allow it to tell me who God is and how God feels about me. The more that I do this, the more that it begins to open my eyes to everything that's around me. A lot more than a sermon or a, a, a teaching would ever be able to do. And so what happens with this entire thing is, in some weird, mysterious way, this table, it is your salvation. <laughs> this is not a Catholic church, Pastor Devin. You need to like, explain that right now. Most of us are part of a church tradition which is the youngest in history. Protestant Charismatics or Protestant non-denominational, it is the youngest movement in the history of the church. And it is one of the only movements, one of the only groups in the history of the church which has not centered its entire activity around this. In all of church history, it is the only movement which has not made this the ultimate act of being a Christian. It's the only form of church where this is not what worship is. Think about that for a second. It is the only branch off of the Christian tree which does this, which chooses to make this secondary and to make everything else primary. 
Now, I'm not saying that just because it hasn't been done before that it's not right. I'm just saying that we should pause and ask ourselves, why? What is it? Why are we the only ones, if you would, Christians on the earth, who don't prioritize this? And we make something else the focus. And so, it's going to take time, and I apologize if this is a lot on the first week, but it's going to take time for us to, to slowly ease in to understanding what is the role of communion, of the Eucharist in being a Christian. How is this part of everything else of what it means to be a follower of Jesus? So this morning, I want to talk about what happens at the table. What is it that makes this so special, so powerful? And so the first thing I want to talk about is this. At the table, we sit down. Now, you say, no, we don't. We stand up and we come in lines and we get our, <laughs> right? Okay. Now, this, this is basically, it's like shorthand, okay? Like, this is basically like uh, the Lord's Supper drive through Okay? It's... <laughs> Now, I'm not saying that we shouldn't do it. I'm just saying, like, that's kind of what it is, okay? We, we, this was taken from an actual meal, okay? To, to actually be uh, sitting with Jesus, with his disciples, they were sitting, having an actual meal, meaning they're sitting at a table, and they're taking their time eating a meal, okay? When was the last time that you spent longer than one hour eating a meal? Come on, hands. One week? Two people? Three weeks? When's the last time that you had a meal that lasted longer than two hours? Mercy. <laughs> I remember the first time that I had a, a very expensive meal. Uh, we're sitting there, and I'm like, it's been 20 minutes. Where's that waiter? I'm ready to eat. You know, and he, and he was like hiding, and, and he, you know, he, he brought us like a, like a piece of bread and some water and gone 20 minutes. Then he'd come back and he'd bring something else and he'd gone 20 minutes. I was like, I'm ready to get out of here. It's like, let's go to McDonald's. This is ridiculous. We'll talk more about the lingering here in a second. What's crucial about this meal, and again, this is shorthand, but this is based off of the practice of sitting together at a table. Now, what's powerful about sitting is this. It is a very vulnerable position, okay? In history, when generals would meet to discuss peace, it was a very powerful gesture to sit down. When you're seated, it's hard to defend yourself, correct? If someone's coming to kill you, you don't go, correct? You stand, you brace yourself, you get ready. I don't know, Michael, am I right? Am I wrong? Is there some Eastern stance? You, you sit down to fight? Okay, good. You, you don't sit down to protect yourself. If you're on the attack, you also don't sit down to take something for yourself. When you sit, it is a vulnerable place for you to put yourself. You are not ready to act or to move. You are stuck. <laughs> What's so powerful at the table is that it calls us to sit. Now, I know on these Sunday mornings we're not going to sit physically, but what it does, it causes us to sit in every other way. And so, in Jewish culture, who you sat with 
was a very powerful gesture. Who you sat with was directly correlated with status, whether it's spiritual status, whether uh, financial status, social status. Who you eat with says a lot about who you are. Think high school, right? Everybody, were you at the cool table? Were we at the kind of cool table? <laughs> the not loser table or that table, right? I mean, like, which table were you at, right? <laughs> okay, yeah. Trying to work your way up the ladder, right? Okay. If I could just date this person, I'd be at the table. Come on. Things don't change. If I just got that promotion, we could get into that club box. Fine, you guys don't want to be honest today. That's okay. It's okay. And so what happens in this is it says everything about who you are and who you aspire to be. And so if you guys have your Bibles, go to Luke right now. Uh, Luke chapter uh, 5. Verse 27, I want to highlight something which is a common theme throughout all the Gospels. It's one of the most uh, repeated traits about the actions of Jesus, which goes throughout uh, the Gospels consistently. And so after this, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector by the name of Levi sitting at his tax booth. Follow me, Jesus said to him. And Levi got up, left everything, and followed him. Then Levi called the great banquet for Jesus at his house, and a large crowd of tax collectors and others were eating with them. Let's just pause right now for a second. You've all heard sermons. You know that tax collectors are viewed as like the worst of the worst, correct? Okay. There's all sorts of analogies I want to use. I have to be careful. Imagine that someone who we all knew owned a porn company. And they invited you over for a party. Gotcha. Amen. <laughs> Who you associate with says a lot about you. I guarantee that the tables you sat at had a lot to do with the parties you went to in high school, correct? Yeah, no one's raising their hand now. Okay. <laughs> mm. oh, I wish I had more time. Okay. <laughs> Who you sit with has a lot to do with who you are. And so he, you know, he, he has this man who responds to his message. Again, he's viewed as the lowest of the low, the worst of the worst, as unclean, as unchristian, as, okay, we use this term for us today. He's a sinner, right? Going to hell, okay? Westboro Baptist is following him everywhere, okay? <clears throat> and so, oh, here we go. And so he had a great banquet. For Jesus at his house and a large crowd of other porn participators, okay, we'll say that, and others were eating with them. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, who belong to their sect, complained to his disciples, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not, called, uh, have not come to call the righteous, but the sinners to repentance. And the lines there, which is so crucial, is why does he eat with them? You have to understand this. This issue continues from here all the way through the book of Acts. This becomes one of the primary issues in the church. When the Spirit's 
falling on people, and everyone's, you know, there's, there's, there's people being raised from the dead, there's healings and miracles, and we all go, oh, hallelujah, it was great. They're still fighting over who should be eating with who. That's still the issue. Sounds a lot like today. And so what happens here is that when you sit at the table, it says everything about who you are and who you aspire to be. And the powerful thing about this meal is that there are three parties involved. There is you, there is God, and there is other. Meaning whoever that other person is who's at this meal. What I love about this meal is you cannot, well, okay, I won't say that. You are not to take it alone. Again, if you're, you know, if you happen to be alone on this island, there's no one around, sure, you can do communion by yourself. Okay? But that's not what it's designed to do. You're to, you're to be taking this with others. Others. I love this. When you sit at the table, the table forces, say this, in order to participate in the life of God, you must be willing to sit. And what I mean by sit is this. You must be willing to be put on the same level as everyone else who sits at the table. No one gets to have a bar stool at the table of God. It doesn't matter what's in your bank account. It doesn't matter what your title is, what you've accomplished, how you smell. I just love that one. It smells bother me. I don't know. It doesn't matter. You don't get special seating to participate in the life of God, to have a part of Jesus, right? To partake of the life and power and the resurrection power of God. You must be willing to be humbled. Now, for some of you, it is humbling. It's taking you from where the world tells you you are and putting you down here. But for others, you have to be willing to allow God to elevate you. There are some people, and again, this goes back to other stories in the Gospels, who were, had, it, had trouble allowing Jesus to give them a seat. There are some people who thought their only place was to be on the floor at his feet. And he said, no, you have a seat. So the struggle for some of us to sit at the table is that it requires us to be humbled, and for others it requires us to be lifted up. And it's a challenge for every single person. You have to embrace the value that God gives you, and you have to embrace the value that God gives the person next to you. And so at the table we sit. We allow God to humble us, to put us on equal level with everyone around us. And if you're, if you're getting this, you're going to understand why this practice is crucial in this time and in this part of the country, right? It doesn't matter the color of the person I sit with. We are this at the table of God. To participate in Christ, I have to be willing to allow every other person on my level. Amen? And so at the table I sit, but the table I also linger as I was saying before with the, with the expensive meal I had, I did not understand the concept. Let's make this meal last two hours. What in the world? But I realized in that meal, I'd never had a good meal before. <laughs> you realize, this is not McDonald's. You are absolutely right. I'm going to take my time with this steak. Mercy. 
when something actually has value, it's worth the wait. You know, we love to travel. And so what happens, uh, you know, with a new town, I just look for the parking lot or for the longest line. Where are people willing to wait to eat at that restaurant? And that's where we're going to get in line. I don't even care what they're making. If there's people who are lined out to the street, I want some of that. At the table, we learn to linger. Because waiting, it shows the value of what we are about to participate in. And so as we linger at the table, and again, we don't get to do this all the time here, but as we practice this in our homes and with people in our lives, it shows the value of God, but it also begins to show the value of each other. To carve out two hours of your life to invest in one person or in a family shows the great value that you see in that person. As a pastor, I was taught that my time is crucial and, I, and that at most my meetings need to go 30 minutes and then I have to cut it off because you know what? There's more for me to do. But for me to linger and to give someone my time is the ultimate way that I can express that I value them. And so at the table, we linger, and it it allows us to express to God our value for Him. and allows us to express to each other our value for each other. And so we sit at the table, and we linger at the table. But the table, we also participate at the table. One of the reasons that we have to recover the value of this practice at Grace Church is that it is very easy for church to become a spectator sport. Correct? Man, worship team did good today. Man, Pastor Devin, he had a great one last Sunday. He, he was off, you know. Razorbacks lost, that's probably it, you know. But, you know, we come, we sit, we watch, we go home. We come, we sit, we watch, we go home. And it's no surprise that it's hard for us to begin to actually invest our lives in kingdom work, right? When the only place that we go to learn about kingdom and about God is the one place we go and all we do is watch. At work, we participate. At home, hopefully, we all participate. Okay, silent. Save that for the marriage seminar, right? But at this place, we just spectate. And so what's so powerful about uh, Anabaptist uh, practice, anyways, it's what Passover became for the first church was something that they called love feasts. And it was a place where everyone, how you put this, it was a very awesome, special, spiritual, wow, what's the word for that meal? Oh my gosh, I lost it. Um, when everyone brings a dish. Oh, I used to hate potlucks, mercy. It's basically a spiritual potluck. But what's beautiful about the symbolism is this, right? What's there, okay, so like what everyone else is bringing, that's what I get to eat right? But, but I'm not just going to it. I'm also doing what? I'm also contributing, right? I'm here to receive, and I'm also here to what? Give. And so every time that I participate in this, it ingrains this. Kingdom is not something, Christian church is not something I just, oh yeah, I have the card to the prayer, I go to church. It's something that I participate in actively. I am a part of what God is doing in the world, in my family, in my business place, in my neighborhood. It's not just something that I watch on Sunday mornings. I fund or I pray for. I am in it, participating in it. 
Who's been to P.F. Chang's? Anybody? Okay. It's not the same as it used to be. They sold out. <laughs> they used to do family-style meals. Do you remember that? It wasn't an option to eat your own food. You ordered something, but you had to share it with the table. Do you remember that? Okay. I hated P.F. Chang's. I don't want what Arnie wants. He got weird taste. I don't want nuts in my food. I'm good. We ain't squirrels here. <laughs> I ordered lo mein because I want lo mein, not because I want to share lo mein, right? And so it tasted good, but I, I just hated it. He was all ruined for me because I was subject to what everyone else chose. Bless, you better believe it. I went home hungry. I can only have a little bit of what I really wanted, and then I got to add some of, you know, sea bass or something ridiculous, you know? Man, I just love going to church because, you know, that, that sermon was great. I'm good. Let's go home. Oh, the worship. Oh, but that song, I love that song, but that song. The exhortation last week was terrific, but oh, well, this class I'll go to, but I don't want to. Oh, well, that life group, I'll go to that one. I like those people. But that family goes to that life group. We're not going to that life group. <laughs> See, what you want, you want church to be a buffet, right? Take a little bit of that. A little bit of that. Skip over the greens. But what you have to understand is that church is not to be a buffet. Church is to be a potluck. Yes, there's lots of options, but we are to come. It, this is what you get. I don't get to choose. This is what God puts in my life to feed into my life. This is where God puts me to feed into, pour my gifts into. I don't get to choose. I get to participate or not participate. I get to sit down and eat or I choose to go home. Gosh, I wish I had more time. In the Gospels, if you read the Gospels, the common theme that you see throughout the, the parables of Jesus Tables, meals, parties. Who gets to come to the meal? Who doesn't? Who sits down to eat? Which brother sits down? Which brother walks out of the tent? Who gets the invitation to the party? Who accepts the invitation to the party? Guess what? The people who don't come to the table, you don't want to be those people. The Gospels in a nutshell. Your choice to sit at the table, to participate in the life of God, it fully explains how you see God. Everything I need to know is right there. How you treat one another tells me your theology more than any discussion of doctrine ever will. So we sit at the table, we linger at the table, we participate at the table, and we also gratify, meaning we get to enjoy it. We get to have our pleasures gratified. Our desires get filled at the table. What this means is the table is a place we go to enjoy. It's hard to fathom this. The more we make space for God and for His people, the more that we begin to desire this. Um, have you ever had a food that like you just didn't really like it very much, but you had to have it for some weird reason, okay? And like the more you had it, the more you began to like it. Anybody? Okay, everyone's like, no, no. Okay. Chicken pot pie. I'm not from the South. Well, 
Midwest, yeah, sorry. Her family, the sleepers love chicken pot pie. They love it. I mean, like when she, okay, her chicken pot pie. When she makes the pot pie, everyone goes like bonkers. The first time I had it, I thought, this is really, this is good. Yeah. And everyone else is going nuts. Oh, my goodness. So good. Oh, you know, and of course, I love her, and she's so sweet. You know, I can't be mean. It's great. Somewhere in that process, I don't know what happened, but somewhere in that process, like, it just got me. I don't even know what happened. I just, like, this, this one day at the house, I smelled it, and I just, I was just, like, salivating. Oh, I want some of that pot pie. What? I hate pot pie. I don't want pot pie. Yes. And so what happens for us with the table is, I don't want this. I, this is, ugh, I don't want to spend two hours with these people eating their food. I know that person just went to Walmart. Pastor always goes to Walmart and buys it. But the more that I do this, all of a sudden something happens. It, my appetite begins to build for it. It begins to, it's something that I choose to do. I, if you would, I almost have to make myself start the process. But at some point, it becomes a joy, a pleasure. For most of you, I won't say that, for some of you in the room, the idea of being in small spaces with church people for two hours is not the first thing that you want to do with your week. <laughs> yeah, I saw like four of those like this. It starts with the call of Christ where he says, if you do not eat this meal, if you do not participate, you have no part in me. And you take that call seriously, and it starts by being this thing you're going, I just, ah. And some point there, it begins to become something that gratifies your desires. You begin to enjoy it. The last thing at the table that we do, we edify, meaning kind of echoes the words of Jesus in the desert. When, Jesus, uh, when Satan comes to tempt him, and his response, and he, he, uh, Satan says, you know, if you're the Son of God, you would turn these, these stones to bread. And the response of Jesus is, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And it's this, this, this statement about how Jesus knew that what sustained him, what edified him, what gave him strength was not anything to do with physical bread. It was leaning in dependency on God daily. And he uses this because bread, food, is something that you have to have how often? Often. What happens if you stop eating? Okay. Here's what he's saying. This is not something I take a bite of God and I walk away. Good. That was great. I said my sinner's prayer. That was a really good service. See you in about six months. We're good. Great meal. I'll be fine for a long time. The table reminds us that Jesus is something that sustains us. He's someone who, who provides everything that we need for life, but it, it is the source of life that we have to eat from daily. It is not enough for us to have our little bite here, little meal here, and to go on our own. Okay, I'm good. Had my fill of God for a while. To, to force ourselves to sit at the table continually, and again, not just with God, but also with each other, it, 
it hits home the reality that to live, to survive, I have to lean on God and I have to lean on someone else. You. Oh, that's painful to say. I cannot do this on my own. Did you guys stand with me this morning? Now in this month, uh, as we do this series, I'm really excited to see what happens. And this week, it's just kind of a kind of touching it from the surface. We have a lot more that we're going to get to in this series and things that I'm really excited about some things that God's going to do in us. But the one thing that we have to, to allow to hit home with us this morning is, is that this practice is central. It's crucial in our ability to truly participate in the life of God, to truly to benefit from everything that's in Christ. Now the table takes all different forms. It can be the action which we do here in these services. We come up with the, the, the Welch's grape juice and the stale bread. It could be something that we do where we sit at table with, with our Christian brothers and sisters. It could be something that we take into our neighborhoods and our workplaces where we invite people who aren't even followers of Christ to participate in life. And in sitting at this table, leveling, investing our time, lingering with them, that they begin to participate and taste of the goodness of God. No matter what form it takes, here's what, what we have to allow to hit home with us. Is that in order for us to fully participate in the life of God, we have to be willing to participate in the lives of each other. Simple as that. If you are not allowing the people of God to participate in your life and vice versa, you are not fully partaking of the life of God. You are missing out. Now, I promise you this, it's probably a whole lot safer the way that you do it now. It's a lot safer, it's a lot more comfortable to pick who's at your table, pick who's in your life, to pick what roles they do, to make sure that you portion the majority of your energy and time with the safe people. But you don't know what you're missing. Gosh, I have to end with this. This is terrible, but stay with me. At the Razorback Games... I don't want to do this, but I need to. Sometimes you get the person next to you who's had a few drinks before they came in. Okay? They smell. Sometimes you get someone who's a jerk, and they are jerks. We'll just leave it at that. Sometimes you get the kid who, for some reason, they've tried to confine this child into like two feet, and he just can't confine. So he's going to kick you in the back of the head the whole game, right? There are so many things about this practice which are not comfortable, but... When that moment comes, it feels so cheesy, and the crowd goes nuts, right? There's, the, yeah. There's an energy that you experience on the ground in those seats where you can't control who's around you, who sits next to you, where it's not a sterile, safe environment. There's something about experiencing that life that you can't have up there in the skybox. Are you hearing me? There's something you cannot catch or experience any other way. There is a power and a life of God that you can only participate in when you're willing to get into these, yeah, those places. 
when you let people into your life who you normally would not allow, when you put your time in places that you don't think are really going to benefit you, that's when God shows up in ways that He would never show up any other way. Father, we just come to You this morning and we ask, Holy Spirit, that You would just begin to move upon us, prepare us for what You're going to do. I ask that You would begin to just to challenge and to, to soften every part of our hearts and understanding that is resistant resistant to trusting people, resisting to being vulnerable with people, resistant to making space in our lives. Every part of us that just wants to hold back and put up walls and to kind of isolate ourselves with people who we know and trust, ask Holy Spirit that you would begin to give us grace and courage and even an appetite for this that hasn't ever existed. We ask Spirit of God that in these next few weeks as we go through this in the Scriptures, in the next few years as we try to pursue this as a body, that Grace Church would be a people that truly looks like a family. Ask that we would know how to eat together, how to spend time together, how to celebrate together, how to cry together, how to fight together, how to fight with each other even. Ask, Lord, that you would do a work in these people that we would have true, honest, vulnerable, ugly but beautiful unity.